This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Art Tactic. You can sign up now for an Analyst Pro membership on arttactic.com and take advantage of our Easter offer, a 30% discount off of the regular price. To take advantage, use the coupon code PROEASTER2019, P-R-O-E-A-S-T-E-R-2019. The offer expires on April 30th, so make sure not to miss it. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. We have a great episode for you this week as we chat with Jason Bailey. He's the founder of ArtGnome. They've compiled the largest analytical database of artworks, and they also explore art and data and how they intersect through a variety of interesting projects and blog posts on their site. We first talked to Jason about why he built this unprecedented database of artworks that he uses to analyze and explore so many facets of the art world and the art market. We then specifically ask him about some of the different ways that he's done this using the data he's compiled. We also talk to him about art and blockchain, not about different uh, businesses that are trying to merge the two, but we really talk more theoretically about what will it take to get so many artworks onto the blockchain so they can, so the art world and the art market can benefit from some of the aspects of blockchain technology. We also talked to Jason about machine learning and artificial intelligence. How are artists actually using this in their art? I think it's an interesting topic, but not many people have really been exposed to it or have seen these kind of artworks. Jason's dealt with a lot of it, and he talks to us about this kind of art. We also talked to him about female and minority artists and what does his data show in terms of how good of an investment those are compared to uh, white males. I've always felt that female artists are undervalued compared to their male counterparts. And, you know, if someone has a certain budget, you can really get a lot more bang for your buck uh, buying female artists um, versus males. So we speak to Jason about that as well. Overall, it's a great conversation. Um, and I think it's really important to hear about data and what it's telling us about the art world and the art market. So we had a chance to do that in depth with Jason in this episode. Thanks a lot. Jason, thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Adam. So you built this really unprecedented database of artworks that you now use to analyze and explore several facets of the art world and the art market. Before we touch on how some of the ways you've uh, used it to actually analyze uh, those things, what was the motivation for building this database and how did you actually go about doing it? Sure, yeah. So um, I've been a big art and art history fan my whole life. Um, you know, grew up sort of looking up to uh, in particular, the 20th century painters, and went to undergraduate to study art history um, and, and got a degree in studio art, um, and then moved into uh, sort of the tech space when I realized that I had to pay the bills. Um, but eventually, I read this book maybe two or three years ago um, called Provenance, and I had learned that, you know, I, I think the conservative estimates are that like 15 to 20 percent of works are either um, forged or misattributed that end up in museums or go to market. I know some folks think the number is higher, but it's the nature of the, that statistic makes it kind of hard to get an accurate number. But re regardless, if it's even close to that, it kind of blew me away, right? So for someone who cares a lot about art and art history, it was sort of like learning that, um, that our art historical record was so fragile and, and vulnerable kind of freaked me out a little bit. 
So I, I, my first thought as someone who's worked in tech and, and big data and databases and analytics was, where is the, the database that just lists out the complete works, by, especially by sort of our better known artists? So I reached out to um, Harvard and Princeton and, you know, a bunch of Ivy League libraries and to the Getty and to the Smithsonian and basically just asked them all the same question. You know, where is this database um, of complete works for, for our better known artists? And they all came back with this, the same response, which is, you know, sadly, no such database exists. If you find one, let us know. You know, we'd be happy to invest in one. And we're sort of, um, you know, suspect as to whether or not anyone could ever actually put something like that together, uh, which kind of blew my mind. I mean, I was thinking it about it more from an art historical uh, viewpoint. But, you know, I also became more aware of the, the art market, which I know it's either last year or the year before is estimated somewhere around $64 billion a year. For the market and it's a fairly top heavy market right so a lot of the um you know there are a few artists who account for a large percentage of that that market so the idea that there wasn't a single database that sort of tracked all these works um you know was was just really fascinating to me um and also kind of depressing right that um, it made it a lot easier for folks to sort of forge things so uh, yeah, I was kind of bummed out about that for a little while. And then uh, my wife suggested, you know, hey, why don't you try to do something about it? So I, I had learned that there are these catalog resumes that are sort of like encyclopedia set size uh, volumes uh, that cover artists' complete works. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a couple of, there's like the ACI index and then another online um, site that try to list out all the catalog resumes. And my ballpark estimate for how many artists have catalog resumes is probably somewhere around five or 600. Um, but, you know, the number might be a little bit higher than that. But anyway, you know, with, with this information being locked in printed books that are often, you know, uh, very rare, very expensive, um, pretty much out of date as soon as they're printed, it seemed sort of silly to me that you, you couldn't perform the sort of analyses that you could if they were in, uh, in a database. So I did everything that I could um, over the next three years to try to access as many of these as I could and scan in the information and sort of put it into um, a, a database. My, my older brother is actually a hardware engineer and built out a, a special scanning device for me using two DSLR cameras and sort of this V-shaped platen that I can kind of quickly, rapidly go through and scan the books. So did that for three years and realized um, that, you know, it was costing me a lot of money and a lot of time. I mean, I thought it was an important project, but I didn't really have an end point to it. Um, and that's when I started ArtNome was to start sharing some of the insights from, uh, from the database and to get my name out there a bit more and to figure out if there are other folks that might want to help kind of progress the project forward. You, with that data, you've really done a lot with it on the site. For our listeners who haven't been to ArtNome uh, yet, tell us about some of the different ways that you've analyzed this data um, to, uh, you know, really produce some interesting findings on how the art market operates. Sure, yeah. So I, I started with actually the most basic things. So there, there's a lot of things that you can do when you have data on complete works um, that you can't do otherwise. And since no one really has a database like this, um, really basic questions like what's the average size of a work by say Cezanne or what's the tallest, you know, one of the examples I give is, you know, what's the tallest work by Jackson Pollock. It happens to be, um, a work that's down the street from me in the, the Harvard art museum. And, you know, Harvard's, um, a very well known and respected academic institution, 
but I'm fairly certain that even they don't realize that they have the, the tallest Jackson Pollock painting, you know, within their collection. And some people I've mentioned this to are like, well, well, who cares? Like, what does that matter that it's the tallest or the widest? But I think, you know, we're a society where we judge things uh, relative to other things, right? So you think about when you graduate high school, they have like superlatives most likely to succeed or most artistic or, or things like that. And we like, you know, what makes things special is what makes them different in relation to other items that are similar to them. So if you look at Sotheby's or Christie's, um, while they may say that, you know, things like dimensions don't matter, um, you know, they're, they're often will say things like, oh, this is the largest um, Cy Twombly painting from the Blackboard series. But the truth is they don't really know, right? Without a, a database, you wouldn't know. So then, you know, some other work, uh, once you start tying the, the data from catalog resumes, things like dimensions and materials, um, into uh, cattle or into uh, auction data um, and blending the two together, then you can start to figure out, is there a correlation between size and, um, and how much a painting sells for, for a given artist or things like that, right? Or even looking at what's the total market cap. So, you know, it's sort of a basic um, thing in any market that you would look at supply and demand, right? And without catalog resume data, um, the, the supply side is actually pretty, pretty foggy. Um, so, yeah, there's there's more in-depth sort of things that you can get into with the data, but I think just answering the power is really just an answering basic questions like quickly, like how many works um, of this type did an, an artist make? And maybe how many are in private collections and how many are, are likely to ever come to auction? Um, you know, what is it about the work that makes it unique relative to all the other works that the artist has created? Has a given artist created it? What, what is a lot of paintings for an artist to create? I think most people would struggle to answer that question, right? But if you look at um, the complete works across 30 or 40 different artists, um, you start to be able to answer those questions. Uh, and, and I think it gets interesting pretty quickly. You also talk a lot about technology and um how that intersects with art and where where things are really headed. So I want to touch on a few um, technological topics that are um, getting a lot of focus lately in the art world and get your opinion on those. Um, beginning with art and blockchain. So I know it's, you know, blockchain's really been discussed at length. So we don't really need to talk about the, you know, technical components of it. But I'm curious your thoughts on the potential for it and where we are with it. You know, it doesn't seem like there are really a lot of artworks on these blockchain platforms and, you know, I wonder what will serve as a catalyst to actually get these artworks on the blockchain. Um, I'm not sure how much success these companies are having doing that. Um, so what, in your view, uh, do you think it'll take for these artworks to end up on the blockchain and provenance tracking can really happen on a large scale? Sure, yeah. Actually, I think the blockchain impacts um, art and the art world in a few different ways, but to sort of address um, provenance in particular, um, you know, the question that, that I ask myself, and I think a lot of folks ask, um, is is the, the lack of data in the art world around um, art that's being bought and sold or in collections, um, is that a technical problem or is it more of a sort of an institutional or, or political social type problem? Meaning, you know, databases, so blockchain is essentially a, data, a database, you know, some people refer to it as a, a distributed ledger. But it's, it's a spot to store information. But we've had, um, you know, databases for uh, decades and decades. So it's not like if the, you know, folks participating in the art world wanted to have um, a spot where they could put all this information, 
there was no way to do it. It's always sort of, you know, databases have been around. So it makes you wonder, you know, is it uh, beneficial to some collectors or institutions to not make this information public, right? Um, and to keep it sort of siloed or private um, as a way to sort of have an information imbalance or uh, an advantage um, when, when it comes time to buying and selling. But I think um, as we, we've seen in other industries, things like sports and, and business, um, that's sort of changing, you know, the hoarding data, um, you know, does, I think people are realizing it does more damage than good. You know, the, the forgery and misattribution issues that I mentioned earlier are a good example of that. Um, and, and as we become more of a data-driven society, I think people are really eager and excited um, about, about being able to access uh, more of this data. So my hope is that people um, will be less hesitant to, to provide the data and that we'll be able to get it into a database. Now, why use the blockchain or do I think there's going to be traction on the blockchain front? Um, I mean, the, the blockchain has some properties about it that I think make it uh, particularly interesting. So, you know, it's sort of an immutable record, meaning that once you've sort of made a change there, you can't go in and adjust it because it's distributed across a bunch of different um, computers. So uh, there's a certain amount of trust that you can have there. You can always add an additional record if you, you know, you learn that what you initially put down wasn't correct, but that, that uh, first entry will always be there. So I think that's part of what makes it um, useful or valuable for, uh, for provenance. Now, where are we seeing traction? Well, I know, you know, beginning of last year, there was sort of like blockchain fever. Um, we had companies uh, like Codex and Artery. And for a while there, there was like one every week was reaching out to me saying like, hey, I'm doing a, a blockchain uh, for provenance uh, company or solution. And then when the cryptocurrency market started to, to tank a bit, I think a lot of the folks that were sort of fly by night um, interest sort of uh, went by the wayside. But we've seen uh, folks like Artery that I think had uh, the right intentions all along are actually doing quite well. So they, you know, they partnered with Christie's end of last year uh, for the Ebsworth collection to do a pilot. And of course, it's sort of crawl, walk, run. I mean, we don't have um, massive records from the art world on the blockchain per se yet, but that might be just as much part of the, the data problem as it is uh, anything specific to the blockchain. We might have to kind of solve this data issue first and then um, and then migrate the data to the blockchain uh, secondarily. But I don't know. I guess I just I do find it um, positive that Artery has been able to work with Christie's. I think we need these larger institutions, whether it's um, auction houses, but also museums and uh, folks like that to kind of all work together and come together to uh, if we're if we're going to solve the issue, and I don't think it's um, coincidence that that artery in particularly is doing as well as it is, because uh, Nana Decking is sort of a trusted uh, person as the chairman of TFAF and someone who's sort of worked um, in the art world for for a few decades, um, so. I think that helps overcome sort of this uh, social trust issue on the data side as well. So no one technology or tool is going to solve this. I think it, it'll require um, folks who other people trust coming together and um, bringing the data together. Um, and then blockchain's a, a fine solution um, if we're able to solve sort of that first half. Yeah, I, th I think I'm with you. You know, I think 
in order for it to really gain traction, there would be need to be some kind of clearinghouse, like auction houses, you know, where artworks, so thousands upon thousands of artworks are coming through those auction houses, and they, you know, they're doing thorough vetting anyways um, on these artworks and, you know, tracking the provenance, um, you know, and then, you know, maybe galleries in the primary market, I, th- I think it requires some kind of effort of them coming together and ma- some kind of catalyst to, uh, um, you know, prompt them to really decide that this is a priority for them. So, it'll, yeah, that, that's a space we'll definitely uh, be monitoring. I also wanted to touch with you, touch with you on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. I know that's um, an area of the art world um, and technology that you're monitoring closely guess if we look at actually machine learning artificial intelligence and how it's being incorporated into art how are artists using this in their some of the artists using this in their art i think it's a you know it's a hot issue we hear these kind of buzzwords but it's also really esoteric concepts for people to understand especially when thinking about well how is this actually involved in art so um yeah what are your thoughts and what can you share about that with us yeah, I love so I love a lot of the new work that's being done um using machine learning and specifically GANs um around art. Uh so I've actually I just finished up four years of working at um a startup company that focuses in on machine learning that was sort of born out of MIT. So I'd been um sort of close to machine learning um when I started seeing work, I guess about five years ago, Alexander Mortensev from Google um put out some work um, are, are called Deep Dream. So people were sort of familiar with this Deep Dream algorithm. And I think um, even if you're not big into machine learning, you probably saw uh, there was sort of a flood of images uh, five years ago where uh, people had like dogs and cats, kind of surrealistic images of dogs and cats kind of crawling out of their faces and houses and stuff. And it was uh, essentially, um, he had, you know, trained this, this uh, algorithm based on an MIT learning set that um, had a large number of cats and dogs in it, so you know those were sort of coming out of the uh, coming out of the imagery. But since then, we've sort of seen an explosion, in particularly around GANs. So you know, on my site, I often refer to uh, this movement as AI art, which um, is helpful for the average person because you know people, more people know what AI or think they know what AI is than say machine learning or neural networks or generative adversarial networks for sure. But I know the artists who tend to be more technical tend not to like um, the term AI art. Um, So when we say AI art, generally what we're talking about is machine learning and more specifically GANs, right? So GANs stands for Generative Adversarial Networks. And there's um, a couple of artists who folks might be familiar with who seem to be getting really popular over the last few years. Um, that I've been working with GANs. So Mario Klingeman, um, who's a pretty good friend of mine, recently just sold uh, a work called Memories of Passers-By um, at Sotheby's, um, I think it was maybe last month. And then uh, Robbie Barrett is a um, 19-year-old. I think he's either 18 or 19. He's going to give me a hard time if I get that wrong. But another friend of mine who's from West Virginia, um, who's doing some really remarkable work um, with with Gans as well. He just had a show in France where he collaborated with French painter uh, Ronan Barreau. So yeah, I, I think the 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 hot button issues. Well, there are a few that that we can sort of hit on. Um, one was so this Gan related work got really popular 
end of last summer when uh, Christie started putting some marketing beha- uh, budget behind a work by um, an artist collector from France called Obvious. So Obvious had put out this work, uh, Edmund Bellamy, um, and you know it ended up selling for like $450,000, which uh, caught a lot of people's attention. But they, a lot of the code they had used um, and the project idea itself actually um, came from, from Robbie Barrett. Um, so he had, Robbie had put out sort of an open source license around a, a work where he, um, you know, scraped historical portraits and trained them on this uh, generative adversarial network. And in his GitHub repository, so I don't want to get too nerdy or technical, but that's basically where you store and share your code. Um, there's this record that anyone can go see now, uh, today, if they wanted to, where the folks from Obvious were like, hey, Robbie, you know, can you adapt this code for us? Can you help us figure this code out? Um, and then pretty shortly after after they learned how to use this code, they started marketing it pretty aggressively, um, eventually getting it to Christie's. So uh, why is this interesting or why does this become the focus? Because I think as we um, see more and more artists using technology, um, we're going to see more of these questions around authorship arise because most, even, you know, these open source tools, most of these tools are built on what people would call a software stack, meaning there are not really just one tool. It's actually several tools and each of those tools can have multiple authors, right? And then when people open source them, um, other artists can come and borrow, uh, from what you've made. So, well, I don't think there's anything um, legally improper about what Obvious did um, in selling the work at Christie's. I think ethically, a lot of folks were like, hey, you know, that seems awfully close to um, to the work that Robbie had done. And we're seeing more issues like that. You know, the frequency um, of those issues is going up rather than down. So what what I find interesting about that is that sort of the, I think a lot of people's conception of what AI is comes from sort of this fear and anxiety viewpoint where we see in the news like, oh no, AI is going to replace all jobs in five years. Or, you know, those stories seem a little out of control. Um, you know, usually the the more informed someone is about machine learning, um, the the less likely they are to, to be sort of on that fear and anxiety side of we're all going to lose our jobs. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that um, people don't necessarily understand or have a solid footing just yet in, in what AI and machine learning are. And with the obvious case, you know, they had kind of promoted that work as if it were made by um, entirely by a machine, when in reality it was actually mostly made by a 17-year-old kid who wasn't getting credit um, out, of, out of West Virginia, meaning um, Robbie Barrett, right? And it's people's desire or uh, I guess ignorance for the lack of a better term around machine learning that, you know, all those stories came out last summer and people thought, you know, oh, well, it must just be that this, this machine is making it. And lawyers were like, oh, I wonder if the machine should get copyright. But what I'm getting at, and you know, I'm sort of blabbing, but what I'm getting at is that what we're seeing is actually the number of humans involved with authoring these works is actually going up, not down with machine learning, right? Which is why we see disputes um, around authorship, because there's so many people involved with these tools at different levels, uh, in addition to sort of the, the artist at the end, um, that we're seeing more more humans involved, not less human involvement with machine learning. And I guess we should, I just want to clarify for listeners and with you, so the work that sold at Christie's, that machine learning work, that it was actually a work on a canvas. So I guess are, are most of these actually 
machine learning artworks, things that you hang on a wall? Yeah, I mean, you could, you know, I think part of why they chose to print the canvas and put a gold frame around it was to make it more appealing um, to traditional art collectors. But as sort of, I mean, I'm a, a super nerdy um, digital art uh, guy. And I think the, the more the more into this stuff you are, the more you want to see it sort of stay digital, I guess. You know, there is um, a movement around generative art in general. So AI art is sort of part of this longer, richer tradition of generative art that goes back to, you know, the early 60s. And um, going back to the 60s, there's sort of this tradition of printing works using plotters, which are like these large uh, printers, like robotic type printers. So you will see some purists print print works out. Um, I think the the work by Obvious was sort of pandering to, to that audience, trying to give them something that looked and felt similar to works that they would traditionally see in an auction house. But most, you know, um, digital art purists would say, you know, keeping digital works digital, um, you know, tends to, I don't know, it's, it's, I think it's true in general with, with uh, art history, we're sort of respecting the medium um, based on how it was created and keeping it as close to sort of its original materials as possible um, as part of the aesthetic. Then I also wanted to touch on, you know, different investment opportunities for artworks. I know you're really passionate about this topic for females and minorities and how much of an investment opportunity um, those two groups are. I've always felt that, you know, great female artists have been undervalued compared to their male counterpart counterparts. And, you know, really given a collector's budget, you can, in many cases, get a lot more bang for your buck uh, with a female artist because of this um, uh, difference in prices. What's your data revealed about this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My data doesn't um, focus particularly close in on that because most of my data comes from catalog resumes. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, most um, catalog resumes um, are just white men from the U.S. or uh, European descent. Um, there's there's not that many of them that uh, cover women or minorities by percentage. Um, but, you know, in looking at the, my data and all the time and money and energy that I've spent, um, you know, I at some point realized that trying to dig in and use all these fancy tools to try to uncover, um, you know, maybe small opportunities that, or arbitrage situations where other folks may not recognize within the art market, there's this really big glaring opportunity that makes all of my my you know, mining for data and information seem kind of silly, which is that, you know, uh, art by women, and I think the stat is generally sells by, you know, for 40% discount um, compared to men. And I read somewhere else, if you take out some of the outliers, it's closer to, you know, 20 or 25%. But still, there's sort of an, an enormous discrepancy there to capitalize on before we worry about, you know, using all these fancy tools to find really small, um, you know, uh, opportunities within within the market using analytics. So, you know, uh, and similarly for, for minorities. So I, I wrote in my um, art market predictions for 2019 that, you know, I really think that we'll see, continue to see some correction there uh, until we get to something closer to parity. So, when folks ask me, you know, generally ask me like, oh, you've got all this data and all these tools, you know, what should I buy or, or what are the opportunities? I generally tell them, you know, to invest in, in uh, female artists and, and minority artists um, because I'm a firm believer that there's nothing, you know, I think people are people and there's nothing about gender or race that would make somebody more or less creative than anyone else. And 
I still think we're very, very far away from seeing equality. So I'm, uh, I'm also an optimist, and I believe that, uh, that our society will eventually get to a spot where we'll stop sort of treating people differently um, for their race or gender. And, and at that stage, when we see something closer to parity for prices across um, races and gender in the art market, those who invest now uh, will have been part of trying to, to bring that equality but they'll also benefit, right, because those works will go up in value once things become uh, become more equal. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and speaking with us about the incredible database you've compiled at Art Gnome, as well as hearing your thoughts on some of the different ways art's intersecting with technology. If our listeners want to check out Art Gnome, which I recommend they do, and see all the different ways that you're using your data, what's the website they can go to? Just uh, artgnome.com, or you can find me at, um, at artgnome on Twitter. Perfect. Jason, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Adam.